I believe this morning what we need is a refreshed vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of. I think a lot of times when we grow a little stale um, in evangelism, it's because we kind of have lost that a little bit. We've grown cold in that area. So we need that picture this morning of how big Jesus is, what it actually it is that Jesus can and does do. And then I want to show you this morning the characteristics of those uh, of people, those people who are good at getting people to Jesus. And so look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is a classic story. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And uh, we're going to read it together. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So let's pause there. Jesus is in this house, and he's, he's, it's, word is he's in town, and he's preaching there, and he's doing ministry there. And the home he is in is likely Simon Peter's, right? The apostle Peter is who most scholars believe would have been the home they would have used. A home in that day, by the way, uh, a typical home, would have been a place where you could have packed about 50 people in there, and that would have been about it. So um, small home, they're gathered there, and notice it's a packed place. You've got God is there, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, is there. You've got people are there. The house is packed, it says, with people. The image bearers of God are everywhere, and the word is being preached. And what you have is a recipe for God to do something amazing. Whenever you have God in the place, you've got people made in his image that he loves in the place, and the word of God being shared in the place. That is a recipe for God to do something amazing, and that's exactly what's about to happen. Look at verse 3. So here they are. You see the scene. It's packed. Jesus is preaching, and it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Wow, what an amazing scene. And when you see Jesus moving in power, when you see the Spirit of God at work and evidence in a place, many times that's what happens. Our lives get reoriented. Our thoughts get reoriented towards God and towards His glory. People are amazed. They're glorifying God. Now, some people were angry. It's giving us a general description of the crowd that day. But obviously we see the scribes who were there, uh, the know-it-alls. Um, they were not necessarily pleased or glorifying God, but the majority of the people were. You know... In Mark's gospel, this story comes at a time when he's showing that Jesus is the true king. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, uh, we get Jesus' baptism. That's kind of how the gospel of Mark opens. And Jesus' baptism, the father speaks and said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is the king, right? This is the son of God, the prince of heaven. And then in Mark 1, 21 through 28, Jesus shows his authority. 
through the power over an unclean spirit or a demon, right? He was casting out demons and doing that kind of ministry. And then in verses 29 through 34 of chapter 1, Mark tells us that Jesus was healing people who were sick and casting out demons. So you've got Jesus showing his power over, over sickness and Jesus showing his power um, over uh, demons. And, and actually in verses 39 through 45 of Mark, Jesus actually ministers to a leper, right? And that was like the sick of the sick in their day. You were so sick, people didn't want to go near you. They didn't want to become unclean. You were, you were not only spiritually sick, you were now a socially, out, socially outcast. And Jesus reaches out and does the one thing you're not supposed to do. He touches a leper and makes him well. And because Jesus, in his purity, and in his holiness, and in his authority over sickness, when he touches the leper, he's not made unclean. The leper's made clean. Because Jesus has absolute authority over all sickness. So these stories are about Jesus' authority, authority and his power over these things. And so it's also a picture of his compassion in the midst of these things. He touches the leper, right? He, he cast out the demon from the demonically oppressed. You even see there with the leper, man, he said, when he calls out to Jesus, he says, make me clean. He doesn't say heal me. He says, make me clean because he wanted more than physical healing. He wanted to be integrated back into society. He needed relational healing as well. He wanted to be a part. He wanted to feel human again. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. You see Jesus' compassion there. He could have just spoke, but he touched him. Who knows how long it had been since the man had felt a handshake or a pat on the shoulder. And Jesus reaches out and he touches him. So what Mark is showing us in the first chapter is that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore the King with all authority in heaven and earth. And he has authority over sickness. And he has authority over demons. But he also has compassion. And then when you get to this story, it's the big one. It's the climatic one in the series of stories. He said he has authority over sin. Only God is supposed to have authority over sin. The scribes are right. Only God has authority over sin. What they're missing is that Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. That's what he's wanting them to see this morning, wanting us to see this morning as well. So this is the clim climactic point in the story is that Jesus has authority over all these things but also sin. And Jesus is compassionate towards the weak and towards the sick but also he is compassionate toward sinners. So this story shouts to us that Jesus is able to save sinners and to change lives. And the story also shows us that Jesus is willing to save sinners and change lives. Listen, if he's able but not willing, he might be cruel, right? If he's got all authority but he has no desire to actually help, that's not helpful to you and I. If he's willing but he's not able, he might be a nice guy, but he's no God. But if he's both able and he's willing, well now we're dealing with someone that must be dealt with and someone we should want to draw near to. You even see in the phrase, he says, he speaks to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He uses a term of endearment. He's speaking lovingly and compassionately to him. And then he's also invoking major controversy because only God is supposed to forgive sin. And Mark is whispering to us, or rather shouting to us, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He can do this. Now notice when Jesus does this, he perceives some things in his spirit, right? What's going on here? Mark may be pointing to his divine knowledge there even, but it would make sense here because Mark is clearly telling us Jesus is God. So it makes sense that he would be hinting at when he says Jesus perceived this in his spirit that it would make sense that he would be hinting to us that yes, Jesus is God because there's multiple things in this story pointing to that. Now Jesus asked them a question that to us, in our, when it's translated from Greek to, to English, it gets, it's kind of like when you're reading it, you're kind of like, okay, what's he mean here? He's, he asked them the question of which is easier, 
to forgive sin, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk. Well, on surface level, to say your sins are forgiven is way easier because how are you going to prove that, right? But to Jesus, they're equally easy because he has authority over all realms. So for him, it, it, for God, it's, he says it and it's done, or as Jesus, as we know, is going to go to the cross and do what is required for sin to be forgiven. So Mark is telling us over and over throughout the story, Jesus is able, Jesus is willing, Jesus is able to change lives, Jesus is willing to change lives, Jesus is able to forgive sinners, Jesus is willing to forgive sinners. And you see here with this particular man, his greatest issue was his sin. Now, we have a lot of problems, you and I do, our friends do, our neighbors do, our lives are riddled with brokenness and evidences of all these problems, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the greatest need we have at the core of every human being is to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. So Jesus sees a man who is paralyzed, and he sees, this, he sees the surface-level problem, a big problem, right? And he's going to deal with that problem, but first, he deals with the real core issue in every human heart, which is that we are sinners and need to be reconciled with God. Notice in verse 10, Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, referring to himself. He says, Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says. Well, that's a phrase that's kind of interesting. It can mean just like any human being, any, any, any man can be a son of man. But there was also a particular individual in the Old Testament that the prophets talked about, uh, the son of man, and this was like a divine figure. This person had authority to judge and to do things. He, he was not a normal human being when you read the prophecy about him. And what Jesus is doing, he uses that phrase throughout the gospel. Jesus' favorite title for himself while on earth was Son of Man. And throughout Mark's gospel in particular, you see Jesus saying, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. Because he's constantly asking people to decide, am I just a guy or am I God? Which one am I? He's constantly pressing that upon us by using this word that can kind of go either way. And he especially uses it when he talks about his death, his resurrection, when he foretells that every time, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. And when he talks about him returning in judgment. So when he talks about the activity, what, what Jesus does, his work, his death, resurrection, and return, he uses the title Son of Man. So it's a little bit of a foreshadowing here. Because we know that Jesus, to forgive sin, the Son of Man would have to die for sinners. And so Jesus is already, beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is already casting that shadow for us, the shadow of the cross is right there over this whole story. So now, notice, you have Jesus. He's willing and able. He can heal. He can forgive. He can restore. But listen, a Savior who is able to forgive sin, able to heal brokenness, who's willing to forgive sin and willing to forgive brokenness, he needs people to heal and to restore, right? For a Savior to save, there's got to be sinners. For someone to heal what is broken, there's got to be brokenness. And in comes a group of guys with just that, a broken, hurting, sinful man, as we see towards the beginning of the story. These guys whose story is told not only here, but also in the Gospel of Luke. That is told with pretty much the same exact detail in both Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel because what they did left a mark both uh, on the Gospel writers. It's been retold for a couple of thousand years. So we see here three characteristics of these people that I think characterizes in general characteristics of people who get serious 
about seeing people get to Jesus. Let me give you the three characteristics that we see from them. First of all, people who want to get people to Jesus believe Jesus changes lives. Now that sounds simple. They're all really simple. They believe Jesus changes lives. Now I don't want you to see. Look at verse 5. A very unusual phrase happens in verse 5. When Jesus looks out, okay, you see the scene. He's preaching. The house is packed. All of a sudden you hear footsteps on the roof. It's not Santa Claus. Who could it be? All of a sudden, the roof begins to move a little bit. Some dirt and twigs fall. Light cracks through. Oh my goodness, there's a hole in the roof now. And a man is lowered down right in front of Jesus. So imagine this morning, if we were in here and Jesus was up here instead of me, that would be way better. And all of a sudden, the hole begins to come in the roof and somebody gets lowered down. And, I mean, and Jesus looks up and he sees all this happening. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, and it uses the plural, it's not Jesus saw his faith. Both Mark and Luke says when Jesus saw their faith. And I believe Matthew's gospel says the same thing. When he saw their faith. Now that doesn't mean it's to the exclusion of this guy. I believe he had faith as well. But the point is this. Jesus, when he viewed the efforts that these people were going through to get this man in front of him, he saw faith at work. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. <laughs> Faith in Jesus. Listen, faith is always made visible by action. That is a biblical principle. Faith reveals itself in works. Faith is not our works. Faith makes itself known through our works. Listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James 2.18. Very well-known verse for many. James writes, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Right? You believe and I do. Right? He says, Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Good luck showing me your faith without doing anything. Meanwhile, I'm going to show you what I believe by how I live. So faith is made visible in action. It's a biblical principle. And their actions said that Jesus is able and that Jesus is willing to change this man's life. They seem to have every expectation that if they got this man to Jesus... That Jesus would be the answer to his problem. I imagine they'd seen Jesus at work before. I imagine they'd seen Jesus out healing before. They might have seen some of the people where demons had been cast out, the leper who had been touched. They had heard the stories. They had seen Jesus at work, and faith had been sparked in them. And they thought, man, I don't know if this guy was a friend. I don't know if he was just some man that had been a beggar that they had walked by for years. We don't really know the story. But they said, let's get him to Jesus. If you're a believer today, you already believe that Jesus is able and willing to save and to change lives and to heal brokenness. Or you wouldn't be a Christian. <laughs> right? I mean, that, being a Christian means you believe Jesus is able and willing to save you or you, wouldn't, you can't put your faith in him apart from that. That's not the question this morning if you're a believer. My question for us this morning if we're believers is have we lost our amazement and passion for Jesus and his ability and his willingness to save and to change lives? Listen, we live in a generation where we can't eat lunch without posting it on social media. Right? You can't go have a dining experience about telling everybody what we think about it on Google or Yelp or whatever. One star, the waiter was horrible or whatever. Wonderful witness. Oh man, I'm doing this today. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, this is going on in the world of politics. I gotta let everybody know what I think about it. You really don't. <laughs> and we're just, whatever, we don't have any problem sharing our passions, right? 
through Facebook. Through what, and that's not just young people, by the way. I've got parents. They're on Facebook. They'll tell you what they think too. They'll show you their lunch too. <laughs> it's all generations for the most part are engaged in this way. It's just where we're at as a culture, sharing our passion socially, letting people know what we think. We need to be reshaped and reformed in our passions. Jesus should be our greatest passion. At some point, that should be making its way out, not just what we had for dinner, right? It should be making its way out. If we're passionate about Christ, if we believe that Jesus saves lives and changes lives, at some point, that should be sparking something inside of us. And my question is, have we lost something there? And if so, I believe we need to look at Jesus. Look back at the gospel and be reminded of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. That Jesus has authority to forgive sinners and change lives. And that Jesus is willing to forgive sinners and change lives. And if you're a believer this morning, you are a walking billboard for it. His saving power. So, people who get people to Jesus believe Jesus changes lives. Secondly, people who get people to Jesus are burdened for Jesus to change lives. It says in verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They didn't just come bringing anybody. Right? It's not just like they didn't just walk in and go, hey, this guy broke his toe yesterday. Jesus, can you heal him? No, they find a guy that has no way of getting there apart from them dragging him, they're carrying him there, and they bring that guy. And I think it's implicit in the text that they must have a burden for this guy. It doesn't state it in the text. I think it's kind of common sense as we read the passage. You say, why is that? Well, it was crowded when they got there. If I didn't really care, I would just say, listen, maybe we'll come back tomorrow. If he's not here tomorrow, maybe we'll catch him next time he's in town. They don't do that. They climb on top of the roof. They get up there, what are we going to do now? They go digging a hole in some guy's roof that they don't know. Peter's roof, right? They, you say, maybe they asked Peter permission. I doubt he was probably playing host at the front of the room. And they go and they begin to remove the tiles, Luke tells us. Because it was normal in these times for, the, for these roofs to have big tiles and things of that nature. And they go through all this because they're burdened for a particular individual. They want to see this man made well. They want to see him made well. Listen, he couldn't walk. So you know what that means? He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for his family. He likely didn't have a family unless this happened to him after he got married and had children and things like that. We don't really know his story. But he very likely would have been poor in their society. There wasn't all the systems, government systems in place that we have today to even help people like that. He probably was a beggar. He was likely isolated and without much community. Probably a social outcast in many ways. His life was filled with evidence that the world is a broken place. You know anybody like that? Whose life is just filled with evidence that the world is a broken place? But his physical paralysis was not his main problem. It was his spiritual death that was his main problem. The fact that Jesus immediately deals with his sin issue tells us that his health condition, most scholars believe, may have been caused by his sin. Now, that's not the norm. Generally, people are sick and hurting and, and, and things like that in this life, that the sickness and things like that are caused by because the world in general is a broken place. The very world structure is broken and bent and warped by sin, and so people get sick and things like that. But people can get sick because of their personal sin. So we don't know. This guy might have been robbing a house and fell out a window. You know what I'm saying? He got paralyzed. We don't know. 
But it's possible, and it's the fact that Jesus goes directly to his sin, most scholars believe, that might have been the issue. But either way, his sickness is a sign of the general brokenness in the world that is caused by sin in general. And because there is sin in the world, there is sickness and death and pain and suffering and marital problems and financial problems and divorce and bitterness and unforgiveness and strained friendships and addictions and loneliness. All those things are in the world because sin's in the world. None of them were part of God's wonderful plan for you, right? That's what we brought into the world with our sin. And my point is that all brokenness is due to sin. And it makes sense that these guys would want to get this hurting man with all this evidence of brokenness in his life to Jesus. He had a felt need that they could feel. Think about that. He had a need that was so obvious that they couldn't help but feel it. They couldn't help but walk by him when he begged. They couldn't help but know his story and hear his story. They could feel, so to speak, his pain. But Jesus didn't simply deal with his felt need, did he? He went deeper. If Jesus had only dealt with his paralysis that he'd been happy for a while, but he may have lived a long and healthy life even. But if his sins don't get forgiven, he lives a long, healthy life and he dies and he's separated from God forever and he's judged for his sin. And while this would have made him happy for the time being, something was going to come along in this life because this is the way life works and was going to make him unhappy again. Something else could have befallen him. Some other tragedies could have happened. So Jesus dealt with the main need, the root need, the the foundational need that every human being has. The other stuff was serious and needed to be dealt with, obviously, and Jesus deals with all of that in time. But you have to get to the root issues. We have to get to the main problem. Everybody's home's got smoke alarms. When I cook at my house, we're reminded that we have smoke alarms. (laughs) Not because I'm a bad cook as much as because what I cook is usually particularly greasy. And fat, like if I choose to cook, it's usually whatever's going to smoke the most, right? It's usually what I'm going to choose to cook. And so we're always, we're fanning the thing, trying to get it to stop, right? Getting the smoke alarm to stop is not really the main issue, though. The main issue is whatever's happening on the stove. where the root, That's where the root, it's just pointing me to a greater need, right? As obnoxious as that can be. If a house burns down, but we got the fire alarm to shut off because we took the battery out, we haven't won anything. Your check engine light comes on in your car. You say, well, if I do this or I do that, I can get the check engine light to go off. Okay, that gets the check engine light to go off. But if your transmission's about to lock up, if, if you don't have oil in your car, or if there's some bigger need there, it does no good to get the check... Here's my point. All these things in our life, all these signs of brokenness, they are check engine lights. They are smoke alarms for a bigger issue. That is that the world is broken and we are part of the problem. We are sinners. And we are in need of a relationship with God. And Jesus goes straight to that issue. And the brokenness that we see in our friends and in our neighbors' lives may be the conversation starter for the gospel. Like Jesus, we've got to look past the surface level issues that may be serious and need to be addressed, but we've got to get to the main issue, which is our personal sin. See, Jesus is the answer to sin and brokenness. It's Him who makes all things new. It's Him who reconciles us to God and gets us pursuing God's design. And right now, I'm willing to bet that all of us have people in our lives that have smoke alarms going off 
that have check engine lights coming on. And we can be real tempted to say, oh, I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you about that. I'll think about you about that. I'll encourage you about that and never get to the root issue, which is why is there so much brokenness in this world? And begin to have conversations with them about Jesus. If all we do is spend our lives waving towels in front of smoke detectors and doing little tricks to get check engine lights going off, and we don't get to the root issue of dealing with people and sin and Jesus, then we can be really nice people but we're not doing the ministry of reconciliation. We do the other, but we make our way to the deeper need. We, do, we minister to the felt need, but we press through to the deeper need if we're doing the work of reconciliation. So we've got to be burdened, though, for these people. And the, these conditions are what springs in us the burden to approach these people. The third thing that characterizes people who get people to Jesus is a willingness to do whatever. When you combine sincere faith that Jesus changes lives with a sincere burden to see someone's life changed, you'll usually end up getting someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to see it happen. That is kind of the secret ingredient to seeing God move in unique ways, I believe, in a church, in our lives, through our lives. Verse 4 tells us when they could not get near him because of the crowd. We've already talked about it. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. It's basically Mark's wanting us to see, as Luke wants us to see, they went above and beyond, right? They didn't just try. Like they could have said, they could have got him there. It's packed. It's crowded. People are even outside. And they could have just said, look, we tried, man. I'm sorry. We tried. I tried. They did more than try. They're like, nothing's getting in the way. How do we... I got a plan, right? And they formed like a little committee. They were Baptists. They had a working team or committee, ad hoc, whatever. And they said, well, I don't, well, what can we do? Well, we could go around the back. Well, there's people around the back. There's no windows in the back. How are we going to get in the back? Well, we could dig a hole under the... Well, that's going to take forever to dig a hole under... Well, there's, we climb on the roof and it's made of dirt and grass. See, that rooms in those days were made... Were like, it was like a yard on top of your house. You say, well, it probably wasn't very strong. Well, five men stood on top of it. It was very strong. And, but they were usually in big sections of, that they were put together with limbs and grass and dirt and mud and all this sort of stuff kind of hardened. And so they removed one of those sections. It would have been a costly, messy process to get this man to Jesus. You know, when I was in high school, uh, we, used to, uh, we did an event one time when I was like a student. And we literally, I uh, forget what they called it, but we would get in like the church van and we, we would have like an evangelistic rally at the church. And we would just like show up at like a basketball game or someone's house and for lack of a better term, peer pressure them into coming to church. I'm not recommending this. I'm just confessing it. <laughs> okay? So this is what we did. So we'd show up at the basketball game and we're like, hey, go ask your mom if you can go with one. Because we're all going to church and we think you should too. Who else going? All of us. And there'd be like 10 of right? And we would just do that. We'd go to all these different people's houses and we'd have vehicles going out and getting people, showing up at their house. Hey, can Joe go to church? Sure, I don't care if he goes to church. Well, great. Now I've got to go to church, right? And because there was like this evangelistic rally going on. Now, I think this guy was a willing participant. I don't think they kidnapped him or anything like that. But my point in telling that story is this. Man, we can say what we want to about that. But man, we were that student ministry was serious about getting people to Jesus. And we saw people saved that wouldn't have come any other way. 
And my point in saying that is that wherever you're at in life, and for a student, sometimes it's some little cheesy thing like that. Wherever you're at in life, there's a way to express our willingness to do whatever it takes to get people we know and love in front of the gospel. For these guys, it was a costly, invasive, awkward, risky moment in front of a house full of people. And they did it all out of belief and burden. The reason this scene is recorded in multiple gospels, I believe, is because it was not normal. These guys made an impression. From the willingness to carry the man, to not giving up when it was too crowded, to climbing on top of a house, to making a hole in a roof, these men showed a willingness to do whatever it takes to get an encounter between this guy and Jesus. Now listen, there was a lot of things they couldn't control. They couldn't control what the crowd thought, what the fallback would be for doing this, or even how Jesus would respond. All they could do was to be sure to arrange a meeting. You know, when I met Christy, we were both working at the same ministry in Birmingham, Alabama. And when I decided, you know, that girl's pretty. Um, and she has an awesome personality. And I would really like to get to know her better and her to get to know me better. What I would begin to do is there were two ways to leave work. Now, she was working at the front desk at the time. And I could leave, leave the normal way into the back parking lot through the back door right by where I work my workstation and boom, be at my car. Or I could go the long way and go by the front desk and go out the front door and go back around to where my car would be in the parking lot. So I went that way, right? So every day that I could walk by and say, hey, how are you doing? How's your day been? And all this sort of stuff. Because what I was doing was this. I couldn't control where this was going to go, but what I could do is this. I could arrange a meeting. And so every day, I arranged a meeting, right? Over the course of time, we got to know each other. The rest is history, right? So here we are, years later, three children, all's well, and um, arranging the meeting worked. We got married, right? So here's my point in saying all that. When we're really serious about something, when we really care about something, when we're really, when our... When in our heart, we really want to make something happen. It's amazing the initiative we can show. I'm convinced we don't lack opportunity as much as we lack initiative. We have to take initiative. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to arrange the meeting that our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers need, our acquaintances need? Are we willing to feel awkward, to stumble over our words, to be told no, to have them offended by the gospel? How important do we feel it is that they have the meeting to be presented with the gospel? And I'm talking twofold here. Inviting them to hear the gospel at like an Easter service or sharing the gospel with them personally. I'm just talking about getting people in front of the gospel. Whatever works, right? Getting them in front of the gospel. Are we willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen? We can't control their response. We can only do our best, whatever it takes to arrange a date. Between them and the gospel. Church, I'm convinced that we need to be a church that needs to be willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about compromise. That's not reaching anyone. I'm talking about prayer and methods and sacrificing our time and setting aside our personal preferences and doing whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. Central Florida is full of people. Full of people. Orlando is full of people. Orange County and Seminole County is full of people. In need, who are broken, who are sinful, who are far from God. People we know, people we can put faces with. In need of a church willing to do whatever it takes to arrange a meeting between them and the gospel. 
The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's the heart of someone who's willing to do whatever it takes to reach broken people with the gospel. Listen, church, we serve a Savior who was willing to do whatever it took to reconcile us to God. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is yes, He's able and willing. He has authority to forgive sin. He is compassionate towards the sinner. But He didn't just speak and say, you are forgiven. He came and He lived a sinless life in our place. He died on the cross bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame, bearing the wrath we deserve, standing in our place, dying for us, paying our sin debt on the cross and rising from the grave, paying the ultimate sacrifice, doing whatever it took to the point of laying down His life to see us reconciled to God. Do we not think that God would invite us into that journey to say, listen, if part of the ministry of reconciliation is get on board, let's be willing, let's go forward to do whatever it takes to reach people far from God, why would we think it's not going to cost us anything when it costs Jesus everything? If Jesus sought the lost, if Jesus loved sinners, if Jesus laid down His life for sinners, shouldn't we be willing to do Whatever it takes to reach people far from God. Let me ask you this morning. Has your sin problem been dealt with? We're about to take the Lord's Supper here in a moment. It's for believers. If you're here this morning you're not a believer in Christ, if your sin problem has not been dealt with, just let that cup, let that plate pass from you. But I want to encourage you this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know if your sin problem has been taken care of, that you have been forgiven of your sin by the Son of Man, I want you to know that He is able today to forgive your sin and change your life. And He is willing today to forgive your sin and change your life. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe like me, you've got people. People that you live near, you work near, people you maybe you know really well, maybe you don't know so well, that have come to your mind during the course of this message. I don't think that's an accident. People that God has brought to your mind and if they are in need of the gospel, if they are in need of life change, if they are in need of hearing about Jesus and you're in their life, you don't have to pray for God to put someone in their life. He's already answered the prayer. We need to be praying that we're willing to do whatever it takes to arrange a meeting between them and the gospel. Let's pray together.